We're going to look at a message entitled, Risk-Taking, Do You Have the Heart for It? It's in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, and the subline there is, Tithing is risky business, and it begins with the heart. Let's make sure we get on the, uh, the right sermon here. We don't, do you want to hear last week's sermon again? I don't think so. Somebody says, sure, I love that. One of the things that Travis touched on earlier was the 2024 budget. When I think about things that I'm thankful for this year, I'm thankful that God called me to Richland Baptist Church. I'm glad he changed my heart about wanting to be selfish and be retired and play golf every day. And he gave me a heart for you people. You're easy to love, but he gave me a heart for you and a heart to, to return to full-time pastoral ministry. And I'm so thankful he did that. I've been blessed, and I've really enjoyed my time so far with you. I hope it lasts for a long, long time. Another thing I've been really thankful for is the people I've gotten to work with here. A good example of that, Miss Carla in the office, obviously, she's wonderful. She keeps things going. She's really the boss, even though they let me wear that title. She actually is really the boss. Wave your hand back there, Miss Carla. She's, she's, she's in charge, I'll put it that way. But the finance committee, you guys have a wonderful finance committee. You have a wonderful personnel committee. Those guys, they don't just meet and just chit-chat. They're serious about what they do. They see it as God's calling, and they're serious about God's business. Your finance committee worked diligently on this budget. Their chairman, Jay, asked for you to kind of, you know, pie in the sky thinking, if we were just going to have anything we wanted, what would we do? And, and y'all did that. Y'all responded, and then we had to tweak it a little bit because it was way on up there. But, but it, it's, a really, it's an aggressive budget. It's like a 6.4% increase, I believe. Is that right? Or 6.2, something like that. So a little bit of an increase, a little bit of a, a faith uh, a budget. Everything's gotten covered. With the focus has been on ministry and doing rather than rather than accruing. I think that's a good focus for us to do. And I believe those are those out in the foyer right now. There's already some copies out there at the connection desk over here, or back back there. Okay, bless. So you guys go by and get one of those. You'll have several weeks now that opportunities for you have some questions or some concerns you look at things and say what's this all about you'll be able to you could of course speak to a finance committee member or to myself or you can sign up for one of those call for an appointment for one of those times that travis talked about earlier there's two different days where you'll have a chance to come in and just speak privately if you have a concern that you don't want to talk about in front of everybody and that's understandable then you'll have that uh, that opportunity we're going to talk about risk-taking to a certain degree today. Some people love to take risks. The thrill of, of the risk gets their heart pumping. Scott, Scott and his family went whitewater rafting not long ago. A little bit of a risk involved there. We saw the, the, the river when it was down when we went to, over to the convention, and there, Scott kept talking about the, a lot of big rocks out there. Couldn't see them when the water was up, so it's it's a pretty risky endeavor. Real, reality TV's played a role in, in that, making it makes thrill-seeking and, and risk-taking a part of our entertainment menu. So let me ask you, how about you? Are you a risk-taker? Are you one of those who tries to maybe avoid risk? Maybe you're more into risk-avoidance than you are into risk-taking. According to the statistics, 22,000 people risk their lives every year shooting the rapids down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. 25,000 people go hang gliding every year, despite the fact that one in every 560 flights results in a fatality. You've, you've all seen videos of bungee jumping. They leap off this 80 or 100 to 120 foot tower with just an elastic rope tied to their body, a giant rubber band in effect. Maybe we have, do we have some bungee jumpers in there? Anybody ever bungee jump? Surely there's at least one person. Just bungee. 
We're a smart group. We're a smart group. No bungee jumpers here. Are skydiving or winged suit flying? That looks that that again, one in five hundred die. People still do it. They line up to do that. You think about all the sports in our culture that have the this, this primary appeal of risk, auto racing, scuba diving, snow skiing to a certain extent, uh, horse racing. I understand that one of the newest fads is surfing with sharks. Now, that's not just sharks are everywhere, right? But I'm talking about going to places where you know there's a lot of sharks and you go, you go surfing. Did I say skiing before? You go surfing where you know there's, there's sharks. There have been numerous attacks in, in recent years, and, and yet surfers continue to go into the locals. That's what surfers call sharks, by the way. They call them locals. Surfers continue to go into the locals' living room to participate in that sport. There are a lot of folks who feed off the thrill of risk-taking, that rush, the release of adrenaline, and the dopamine causes a pleasure to just go coursing through the body when we take risks. It's addictive to a lot of people. But most of us in this room today are, are far from being serious risk-takers. There are far more of us to be inclined to that lifestyle of risk avoidance, avoidance that I mentioned earlier, whether it's a matter of avoiding risky activities like four-wheeling or snowmobiling or whatever, or, or eating low-fat sugar, low-sugar diets, or avoiding commercial air travel these days for sure, most of us want to do everything we can to lower our risks. We don't particularly have a problem with the idea of risk-taking as long as it's someone else who's doing the risk-taking, right? Let's read Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Would you please stand and honor the reading of God's Word? For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each one according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more saying, Pastor, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the five talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he who will have an abundance, and he will have an abundance. 
but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, here with uh, this parable from your word, and there are parts of it that uh, challenge us, parts of us that encourage us, and parts of us that convict us. And we pray, Lord, today that your spirit would work through us to help us to not just recall what we've been taught previously, uh, to be reminded of principles and truths that your word contains here, Father, but to give us the, the wisdom and the strength and the creativity to apply this word to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever thought, as you read this very familiar parable of the talents, how Jesus encourages his followers to take somewhat of a risk with money? And again, he's describing for them what the kingdom of heaven is like. For it will be like a man. What is it, church? kingdom of heaven go back up to verse one then the kingdom of heaven will be like so that's what he's describing here the problem with becoming so familiar with a particular text is that if we're not careful we become so familiar with it that we lose the true message we we lose what the text is actually confronting us with now you and i don't have to look very far or think very long to realize the many many ways that god has blessed us for context of our story here, one talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a worker. So a five-talent person in today's currency would be a multimillionaire. But the monetary worth of the talent, of the money, the value of the money here, is not the point. It doesn't matter how much the talent is worth. The point is, what are we doing with our money? What are we doing with our talent? A popular saying is, use it or lose it. Now, we know from God's Word that one day all of us are going to stand before our Master and we're going to give an account of ourselves. But here in our text, Jesus challenges His original listeners and He challenges you and me to, to live a lifetime of risk for Him. Jesus, He praises these two servants who double what they were given by their master. But what exactly, exactly how do five talents become ten talents? And how, how do four talents be made out of two talents? And it seems obvious to me that you have to risk the principle. You have to risk the base of what you've been given. These stewards put this work to money, the money that, the steward, that their master had given them. They put that money to work. So, so maybe it was real estate or maybe it was livestock or merchandise, but whatever, when their Lord and Master saw that they had done, He praised their efforts. And what about the third servant, the one who had received the one talent from his Master? He was the one who was too timid. He was too scared, unable to take a risk. He dug a hole in the ground, and he, and he hid that money, that talent he had been given, and he got blasted by his Master for doing that. Jesus teaches us over and over again that faithfully following Him is going to mean risk-taking, sometimes radical risk-taking. When others grow fearful and timid, the faithful remain strong and courageous. When, when following Him is not the popular thing or the easy thing or the convenient thing to do, the faithful follow Him anyway. When following 
Jesus means walking away from your family and your possessions and everything you know and love. Those who are inclined to prefer the safe and secure will shrink back. But those who are willing to take a risk in what at times can be a precarious, a sacrificial lifestyle will follow Jesus anyway. And yes, it may cost you everything this world calls treasure. Yes, it will rarely be the popular or the convenient or the easy thing to do. Yes, it may be risky, but the faithful follow Him anyway. Say the faithful follow Him anyway. So as we look at the example in our text here of, of taking risks with our money, we realize what may be one of the most difficult but important lessons that we comfort conscious Christians need to learn. And if we're willing to listen and learn, our, our text, I believe, offers us a lesson that can take us to a new level of spiritual growth and, and joyous living, too. That is, if we, if we have the heart for it. So let's look at these three servants in these verses, and there's something for every one of us here this morning that can, we can take away about what it means to step out in faith and maybe even take a risk. So how about the five-talent servant? The five-talent servant doubled the money with which he had been trusted, and it's clear he put his master's money to work. He earned a 100% return on his investment. And I wonder, are there any five-talent folks here this morning? I wonder about that. But I want to tell you this. If we covet more, better beware. For more comes at a price. Because with more money usually means not less but more work. Certainly more stress. Certainly more temptations. The Bible speaks to us about the burdens of wealth. It's where it says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But our text seems to be offering encouragement because the rich man is the one who's held up as the example here. He's not the one who's criticized. The master, when he learned that his servant had taken what was given to him and doubled it, said what? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Whether or not you see yourself as a five talent person your master has put what wealth you do enjoy into your hands it's come from him amen and not to sit on and not to stash away but to use for his good and his glory a saying from the investment world goes like this weigh the risk versus the reward so though we don't know exactly how this servant doubled his master's money, we can, we can assume, I think it's safe to assume, that he didn't take some kind of crazy chance on wheat futures or go to the blackjack tables down at the local casino. He took a designed yet deliberate risk, and as a result, he doubled his master's money. For the five-talent person, the challenge for you is to take the long look to look into eternity, to risk eternity, to give generously. Jesus says, Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Acts chapter 4, we have the account of Barnabas. And what Barnabas did, he sold some land, right? And he brought all the proceeds of that land sale, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the feet 
of the apostles. And I'd say that Barnabas was definitely a five-talent servant financially. And he provided out of what God had given him resources for the church to be able to do kingdom work in those early days when it was so critical. He gave generously, which seems to go along with the character of a person whose name is the son of encouragement, right? And then the two-talent servant. What about the two-talent servant? Has anyone ever dreamed what it would be like to come into this exorbitantly large amount of money? I mean, your crazy rich uncle that you didn't even know you had has died and left you millions. Ever thought about that? I always say to myself, if that happened, or if I found a lottery ticket on the ground, the winning lottery, I'd never buy one, but say I found the, that could happen, right? You could find the winning lottery ticket. The first thing I do is give most of it away to the poor and the church and my family, the kingdom. But you know, there's, there's a short but rather humbling little expression in this story which we might overlook. It says, God gave to each, the master, God being the master in this case, to each according to their what? Ability. See, God knows what Richard can handle. I'm probably not finding that winner lottery ticket, and I certainly have no crazy rich uncle. God knows what you and I can handle. I have an easier time identifying with the two-talent servant in this parable, and he did also double his master's investment. Most of us are more like the two-talent guy. We're not wealthy by the standards of our culture. We don't have millions in the bank, but we're blessed. We can pay our bills and take the occasional vacation. We take care of our needs and some of our wants. We have a, a comfortable life. As a two-talent person, we face two primary temptations. First is to resent the five-talent person. Rather than being grateful for what we do have, for God's gracious gifts to us, we fight the temptation to compare. We fight the temptation to be jealous of our neighbors, our friends, or our family members who have, who have more stuff, more money than we do. And if we give in to that temptation, what we've done is make the decision that we're going to try to keep up with the Joneses. And we wind up with more mortgage than we can handle, more car than we really need. We take exotic vacations that we can, can't really afford. We, we really have more of everything than we need in this effort to keep up, and we can find ourselves in deep and debilitating debt. This attitude can carry over even to the church, where there may be an inclination to withhold the tithe or not to give over and above the tithe to missional efforts like the Lottie Moon Christmas offering because of resentment. Well, there's a bunch of rich folks in this church. They can shoulder this burden. They, they can do this. But jealousy and resentment are signs of greed and immaturity, church family. Proverbs 28, 25 says, A greedy man stirs up dissension, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. A second temptation the two-talent person can face is to look down on the one-talent person. To feel like just because you've got a little bit more that you're actually a better person. But Jesus Christ, the greatest person who ever lived, had a little more than, his shirt, than the shirt on his back, it appears. Proverbs 28, 6 says, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. Beloved, our Father does not measure us by our wealth. He measures us by our character. 
It's interesting in this parable that the exact same praise is poured out on the two-talent person as on the five-talent person. The master of our parable doesn't say to the five-talent man, you got more? Oh, well, you're my favorite. You're absolutely the best. You did the best. He says the same thing to the two-talent person that he says to the five-talent person. And I suggest to you that if the one-talent person had doubled his investment, there would have been the very same accolade for he gives to each according to his ability. If you're a two-talent person, you had the responsibility to make the most of what God has entrusted you with. For example, if you, if you work for 40 years and you average... $35,000 a year. In those 40 years, you'll have earned $1.4 million. The, the, the two-talent person must resist the same urges to indulge and hoard which, with which the five-talent per, person deals. And that means being a wise steward. The first risk God asks all of us to take with our money is a tithe of our earnings. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 was written to people who had very modest means. It reads like this, Well, a man robbed God, yet you robbed me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. See, the Jewish perspective was not of giving God a tenth. They viewed it as owing God a tenth. A tenth automatically belonged to to him. A good question for us might be something along the lines of how much of God's money, excuse me, how much of my money am I going to give to God? And how much of God's money am I going to keep for myself? That might be a better way to look at this. How much of my money am I going to give to God? How much of God's money am I going to keep for myself? The very next verse, verse 10 reads, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. God promises that when we will give the tithe to Him, He'll open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing upon us. So great we won't blessing which very often may have nothing to do with money. 2 Corinthians 2, excuse me, 9, 6 reads, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. If the average household income in this church were $83,000 a year, that's the average, that's the median household income in Richland, Washington. So $83,000 a year. And if every family tithe, We'd have more than enough money to do even more of God's work here in our church than we currently do. More than enough money to help even more of the less fortunate than we do now. Enough to support our missionaries better. Enough to, here's a good one, enough to plant multiple churches everywhere. This, this church has a tremendous history of planting churches. In the first 50, 40 years of this church, I think it was like 47 churches. Richland Baptist Church planted. Can you imagine that? But how many in the last 30 years? Were you aware that one out of four American Protestants give away no money at all? Not even $5 a year. 
When it comes to generosity in the local church, just 21% of Christians say their church giving is 10% or more of their income. Again, one quarter, 25%, don't give a dime to the church. Researchers tell us that committed American Christians, that is those who say their faith is very important to them and go to church at least two times a month, earn more than $2.5 trillion a year. On their own, they'd be in the G7. On their own. That's the wealthiest seven largest economies in the world. If those Christians gave away 10% of their after-tax earnings, they would add $46 billion to kingdom ministry around the world. Again, 21% of Christians claim to tithe, but 40% say faith in God is the most important thing in their life. And on average, those who make between fifty and 75000 a year only give 1.5% to any charity at all, total. That same group spends 12% of their income on leisure pursuits every year. Now listen, if I can hear you squirming. If you're not currently tithing, I get it. I get that it sounds risky to tithe. You probably have a mortgage. You've got some other debt that you've accrued. Family members that you're helping. You really don't see how you can possibly afford to tithe. I mean, you think about tithing sometimes, and perhaps your intent is to begin to tithe at some point when you get a little ahead. But, of course, then there will be no, no risk. Little or no faith required. But, but you say, I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I don't know what's going to happen with my health. And who can predict this economy? I had someone say to me one time, Pastor, I've got some money. I guess I'd be considered wealthy. But I, I've really been tempted in these economic times not to give. The economy is so bad. But I was reading in Psalms this past week, and I read a passage that really convicted me along these lines. And the passages were Psalm 37, 16, Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked, for the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. In verse 19, In times of disaster they will not wither, in days of famine they will enjoy plenty. Sorry about that. God promises that if we're faithful to tithe, regardless of the economy, regardless of famine, regardless of whatever the hardship might be, He will see to it that our needs are met. Now, that's risky. I get it. Again, I understand. But I can't help but wonder, if you're not currently tithing, is it more of a faith issue or a greed issue? Is it because... You don't have enough faith to believe that God is going to honor His Word. He's going to do what He said He's going to do and provide as He promised. I read recently about the commitment of Christians in Romania. The Christians there, as you might expect, are very poor, but they believe in the tithe. They think that's God's standard. The government of Romania is very oppressive, and church members there are limited. They can only give legally 2.5% of their income to the church. But the Christians in Romania are searching for loopholes in the law so they'll be able to give 10%. They have far less than the average American, than all of us certainly, and yet they're looking for ways to give 10%. 
we, we're, we're, we have far more, and we're free to give as we please. In fact, our government gives us a tax break for doing so. But judging by the statistics I shared with you earlier, there are many who identify as Christians who are looking for loopholes in the Scripture to avoid tithing. What an indictment. Jesus points to the Pharisees' faithful tithing, and He says they nonetheless neglect justice and the love of God. He says that indeed they should do the former, that is tithing, without neglecting the latter. So the argument can be made that Jesus assumes that believers are going to tithe. I know where you're thinking, some of you, but as we're going to think about our relationship today in terms of the Old Testament tithe, I'd simply do it like this. Surely you'd agree that we are more blessed than the majority of Old Testament saints. We have more, most of us, the vast majority of us, virtually everyone in this room probably, has more of everything than almost everyone in that day. Why then would we assume that we be expected to be less generous than they were? We spent a long time in the Sermon on the Mount. I loved that time there. I hope you did as well. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you were moved as I was. One of the things that, that, I, that I go back to often that really touches me about that is Jesus is always saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Let me ask you, was there even one time and all of the you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you that he lowered the standard? What did he do every time? He raised the standard every single time. He never lowers the bar. So Christians, we ought to see the Old Testament tithe as a minimum percentage of our income to give to God. A worthy goal for us to give more to the Lord every year than we spend. It's for us to give more to the Lord than we spend every year on any one item we purchase for ourselves, including our house or the IRS. I hope I have the courage to risk enough to please the Lord. When I stand before Him, I want to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Not just in pastoring, not just in preaching, but in your finances. So then what about the one-talent servant? He refused to risk anything. He dug a hole, buried the talent given by his master in the ground. Now, let's give him credit for this at least. At least he acknowledged that the talent belonged to his master. But he's got some serious character issues, doesn't he? And as a result, he made some seriously wrong choices. First of all, he was fearful. The text says, I was afraid. It's a quote. He says, I was afraid. I couldn't take any risks, in other words. Secondly, he was lazy. Look at verse 26. He didn't just want... He, he says, the master says, you wicked, lazy servant. In other words, you just didn't want to work. Third, he lacked imagination. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, the master says. And last, he refused to accept responsibility for his actions and instead made excuses. I knew you to be a hard man. It's really not my fault that I can't give. I'm really the victim here. So, so the one-talent servant was condemned for poor stewardship. Take the one-talent from him, give it to the one who has ten, and throw the wicked servant outside into the darkness. Most of the gospel is compassionate to the poor. But here's an example where the poor man is the goat, not the hero. 
And I wonder if Jesus could be teaching us a lesson here about accountability. Certainly none of us here today can say, this doesn't apply to me, preacher. Let me speak to you for a minute. You folks who consider yourselves poor. Maybe at this stage in your life, you're, you're no longer earning a wage. You're on a fixed income. Or maybe you're just starting out in life. Maybe you've been laid off and you're out of work at the moment. Maybe you have a job, but it didn't pay very well. What this parable teaches is that being poor does not give anyone an excuse not to make the most out of what God has entrusted you with. We're all to, to work hard, to earn, to spend wisely, and we're all commanded to give back. In Leviticus, we read that people were to bring as a sin offering a, a calf or a goat to the temple for sacrifice. Leviticus 5.7 reads, If he cannot afford a lamb, he is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for his sin. Now, thank God, literally, because of Christ, we no longer have to make a sin offering. But the principle here, the point is, it doesn't say, if you can't afford a lamb, don't worry about it. Don't bring anything. No, you bring something, even if it's just a couple of birds. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, some of you should set aside a sum of money. What is this? Oh, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. If you're a one-talent person, don't be concerned with the folks who have more. Don't make excuses like, since, since I can't give much, I'm just not going to give anything. As a starting point, give 10% of what you do have. We were in seminary. We pastored a little bitty church in southern Indiana. I was going to Southern Baptist, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, it's about a 30-minute drive up there. We actually ended up living on the field up there. A little bitty church that couldn't afford to pay very much. And we had next to nothing. And I always justified our uh, lack of giving very much to the church because, you know, I'm paying uh, tuition at seminary, and I'm buying books every time. And, you know, I, we don't make very much money, so, so I don't think that really matters to God that I don't tithe. I got, he, he didn't agree with me. I got seriously, seriously convicted about that driving into church one week, one day, and, and God said to me, just like he was sitting in the back seat, it wasn't an audible voice, but I, I just heard, give 10% starting right now. Just start right now. We had $120 in the bank. And I wrote a check for $12 and put it in the bank, put it in the church. One day Jesus stood at the temple and he watched what people were giving and he watched with this eye of forgiveness, but he also watched with an eye of expectation. And this widow came by. She only had two mites to her name. And amazingly, she gave both of them to God in the offering. Now Jesus didn't stop her and say, oh no, well, wait a minute, madam. You shouldn't do that because you really can't afford to do that. No, he commended her. We're literally still talking about her today. And in fact, he said she gave more than everybody else because she gave all that she had, and the others gave out of their abundance. Beloved, when you give, you remind yourself that God is in charge. When you give, you enable the Holy Spirit to flow through your life and fulfill His promise to provide for you beyond what you can understand. When you give, you contribute to the spirit of oneness, of fellowship, of koinonia, 
and the church. When you give, God multiplies your gift and uses it for the building of His kingdom. It doesn't matter if your tithe is a little or a lot. I seem to remember a story about a little boy who had five pieces of bread and a couple of fish. And Jesus took that little lunch and multiplied it to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Now, I've not read a stat anywhere about the Tri-Cities specifically, but it's safe to say that as a minimum, the average, the, excuse me, the percentage of lost people in the Tri-Cities is, is at least as high as the national average. We could argue that it's even higher or lower. 24% is the national average. 24% of Americans are born-again Christians. And that means at least three out of every four people that you encounter as you walk the streets of Richland are lost. They're without Christ. They're destined for hell. Beloved, as a church, we're not, we're not called to merely keep up appearances and programs and ministries here within these walls as important as there are. There's more. As Christians, we're not called to a life of comfort free from sacrifice. We're called as a church and as individual Christians to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we do that to the extent we're called to if we fail to take some risks? It's risky when a plane leaves the runway, but that's what planes are for. It's more risky for the plane to just sit there and accumulate rust. When I lived on the, we lived on the coast of Oregon, I learned that fishing in the very rough and dangerous North Pacific is extremely risky. Multiple men die every year in that vocation. But that's what ships are for, and that's what fishermen do. It's riskier when the ship and its owner sit in the harbor and collect rust and barnacles. It's risky when a church steps out of its comfort zone and in faith decides to try to do something God-sized. But that's what the church is called to do. It's, it's far riskier, I would say to you, to sit here comfortably in our pews, happy and content that no matter how much the world changes out there, no matter how bad things get out there, things in here are never going to change. Last Sunday, we honored those who served and defended our nation, as we rightly should have. They knew the tremendous risks that were involved. They knew they risked not coming home to family and friends. They knew if their enemies had their way, they definitely would not be coming home. But they pledged their lives to defend their country, my country, your country, anyway. Let me ask you as we close. Is there anything important enough to you that you'd risk everything you possess? Is there anything important enough to you that you'd risk everything you possess? Is there anything in your life you love enough for which you'd be willing to risk your life? I believe with all my heart
that the Church of Jesus Christ is the only hope for the future of the United States of America. But more importantly, it is through the church that people hear about Jesus Christ. And He is most definitely the only hope for eternity. God loves this church. And He died for this church. And He said, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? If you're a multimillionaire and you're lost for eternity, you're a failure, an abject failure. If you've got nothing in the bank, nothing but the shirt on your back, and you live forever with Jesus Christ, you're a great success. You see, it's not about your pocketbook. It's about your heart. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the abundance that you have given us. We so very much take it for granted. We're thankful that your word has given us clear guidelines about returning unto you a portion of that, giving to you. Father, everything is yours. Indeed, we should consider how much of your money are we going to keep rather than how much of my money am I going to give to you. I'm thankful, Father, for the many in this church. Clearly, this is evident by the, just the facts and figures. So many in this folks are obedient to tithe and they have been for decades again evidenced by the facts and figures Father I pray you'd speak to those of us who are faithful to the tithe about whether we might give even more whether that tithe is the, is the bar that might need to be raised that we might need to give over and above that generously, sacrificially Father, I want to pray for those here who are struggling with the tithe. They give from time to time. And, they, and Father, they're convicted. They were convicted before this message today. They want to give, and they're, they're thankful for everything that you've given them. They know it's all yours. They just struggle with, with the idea of giving a tithe back unto you, Father. And I pray that you'd speak to their hearts today. Father, increase their faith. We're like the disciples, Father. We want to be those of great faith. Help us to learn to trust you, Father, in all things, even with our bank account. And Father, I pray that you'd help us as a, as a church and as leaders to be wise in the resources that do come into this church, to recognize that they're still your dollars. They're still your resources. And we need to be wise, prudent about how that money is spent. And that our primary focus needs to be the gospel of your son Jesus Christ and reclaiming the lost for your kingdom. Thank you, Father, for time together spent in your word today for a challenging word from Scripture, Father, that pierces our hearts, certainly, and calls us into obedience, which we're thankful, Father, is only possible by your Holy Spirit working through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.